Good evening, everyone. Could you turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1? Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. As you can see on the board, we'll be in our eighth hour of the Doctrine of Sanctification. It's a 10-hour, actually, it's a 9-hour series. We have one more hour after this. And uh, tonight we'll be looking at the Doctrine of Sanctification in relation uh, to uh, Paul's teaching in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And so uh, we'll be uh, doing that tonight. And uh, so you should be at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. And remember, just a reminder, a couple things, um, that uh, the, the corporate prayer meeting, we have it the last Wednesday of each month at 6 p.m. So if you're able to do it, uh, uh, November 29th is the last Wednesday of this month. And um, what else? Should I uh, start another? Yeah, well, we're not going to have, uh, what was it? We won't have class Thanksgiving. So uh, on the 22nd, we will not have class. The, the, pre, the, uh, the, the eve of uh, Thanksgiving, we won't be having class uh, on Wednesday evening, November 22nd. Okay? So mark that in your calendar. And I'll talk about the, the Christmas stuff later. But that's a preview of coming attractions. Okay? And what else? I think, oh, um, I've got to tell you guys. It was really fun, kind of fun. Oh, so i got to tell you, I had a little drama of, of my probably created by myself, but I'm sitting, uh, I'm in my house, and uh, you know, I live on O'Shaughnessy, it's really quiet there, and, and I have, uh, on one left side of me, when you look out my front door, I have um, the uh, hair salon, and I get along great with her, I know the owner and his, her, her uh, husband, and uh, he actually helped me do some stuff in my yard, and uh, so he, uh, so I, get, I know them, and so they're not there at night, so I had this, this couple that moved in, and um, I think the Indian, Pakistani, and I met him and his wife and child. What was that? And uh, and, and also uh, his brother. Okay, so I meet him, and I was you know it was like a couple of days, and all of a sudden I haven't seen him. Time goes by. I haven't, this is like a couple of months ago, two three months ago. <laughs> so I figured they must have left. They must have, you know they they got it and they decided they were, that wasn't going to work or they you know they flew the coop. I didn't I hadn't seen them. I hadn't seen anything. Any form of life. The only kind of life I've seen in that place is in the shed one day when I opened, when they were moving in the day before the day they were moving in, and I pulled my bike and my lawnmower out of the shed in their in their yard because I asked the Lanco if I could uh, the people I rent from if I could use it to put my bike and my lawnmower. So the people moving in, I pulled it out. Well, there's a guy that you know one of these guys out here was actually here one night. John was his name. So so I figured, oh, so that's only signs of life I've seen. So I, I get into bed last night. I'm like, Say my prayer, good night. Later on, all of a sudden the light flashes through the blinds a little bit. Like you could tell all of a sudden, said, what? what is going on there? It's like, oh, come on, nobody's breaking in one of these guys. So I look over and the light's over there. I say, that is weird. They shouldn't be, I, I, I'm assuming they don't live there anymore, okay? Anyways, I call, I call the police. There's no answer from the, I usually I get an answer from uh, Huntsville because there's two stations. So I decided, you know, and it goes to the voicemail. Where are you going to voicemail the police station? Usually just pick it up. Well, I, I, I did 911. And I said, I apologize for using 911, but I think, uh, can you guys come down and, uh, you know, check this out? So, because I didn't think there was anybody there. So, next thing I know, I mean, there's no lights usually on ever. And I've never seen anything, okay? So this is why it alerted me, like, oh, maybe there's somebody's breaking in. So then we get there. The police come over, and uh, the guy, <laughs> and then I was like, oh, gosh. He knocks on the door, and this guy comes out. Like, That's not the guy I know, you know. And where's, you know, the wife and kids are not, the kid is not there, and the wife is not there, and the guy, where are they, you know. So 
And they're talking to this guy. He looks at me. I look at him. I don't know you. And why is he in the house there? So the police officer talking to him. Finally, I, I got finally got on the phone. I wake up. The, the girl runs the office that where we, the Lanco where I rent. And I go, hey, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's a guy here. They still actually they still living here. That is actually they still pay rent. I said, really? Because I haven't seen a car drive up here. I haven't seen that couple there with the daughter since the, the, the second or third day they were there. And they disappeared. She goes, that's weird. I was like, okay. So then I tell them, they let the police talk to her. And, they, and so the police go, I go, hey, guys, I'm sorry, but better safe than sorry. I don't know. There's spies all around here. I'm trying to help us out here. You know, I was like, they cracked up. So anyways, they get out of there. So I, the guy, actually the guy... This guy, the, he is, uh, his, the, his, his name's CJ. He, he runs the gas station, uh, the, um, the Chevron, and he also has Kyle's Corner here. I go there all the time. I say, are you? So I was talking to him, and he came over, and he, he, he was basically, you know, apologizing or whatever. I don't even have to. So we're talking. He, cool guy. He's a nice guy. And then he told me that his brother and his uh, wife, his wife didn't like the area because it's like it's solitude. There's not a lot on around. So she, she went back to Chicago. They went back to Chicago because that's her family. I said, really? I love it around here. There's nobody here. So I told him, I said, so I go to the, I go to the guys, you know, I love that the guy's here and I didn't know he was here. I think you're the greatest neighbor of all time. I didn't even know you're there. You know, so you could keep, stay, I mean, I hope you stay here. Don't get, you know, so he, I saw him today and I apologized. I said, hey, sorry, I called the police on you. He says, I didn't think anybody lived there. You know, it was just weird. And, you know, for two months I hadn't seen anybody. So that's my little drama for the evening. So I guess from time to time, I'll let you know what's going on in my life. That's about a bit about the excitement in my life, you know. And other than that, uh, we, uh, we had, um, Buddy and I played Monday in golf, so we had a beautiful day. And, uh, and uh, we was, you know, it was cool. We just, you know, Buddy's so cool because, you, you, know, uh, you know, when you have somebody in front of you and you're in the, you had a, we had a foursome in front of us and they're walking. So Buddy and I are in the bike. You know, me and Buddy, I could finish the, the round in two hours. You know, it's like my father and I. So these guys, I was like, yeah, and I'm sitting there going, you know, and then, then he goes, well, you know, the good thing is, you know, the peace in your soul, you know, like, like, like you know, like, you know that these guys are going to be here. We'll take our time. It's a beautiful day. Don't worry. About, you know, like, he was kind of, without saying don't worry about it, he was so gentle and so, uh, what do you call it? I was like, you know, that's right. I just got rebuked there. <laughs> Maybe he wasn't intended that. It was like, yeah, calm down, Bill. It's a beautiful day. Smoking a cigar with, with Bud and you're playing golf and what can you be? It was a beautiful day. So, so anyways, he, and the great thing he, uh, I like having him, he'll, he'll, he was coaching me up a little bit. He goes, he says, because uh, I, 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 I drove the ball great. I mean, I was, I was hearing the ball. And there's those second shots. He's like, you know, he's like, he's, you know, he make sure you hit the greens, right? So he was keeping track of the greens. He said, you do that? Anyways, I go, no, I never do that. He goes, never think to do that. He goes, you should do that. So it was really good because I hit a lot of greens that day. And so I should have broke 80, but I choked on the last hole. Hit it in the water. Of course, I told this guy over here, and he's laughing his butt off. He's like, I birdied that hole last year and potted for the first one. But I, I just couldn't hit the stupid green. That's a tough hole. I, all the courses you guys took me to, I think that's the hottest hole. Uh, 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 hole because just that, it's, it, it, they put the pin below, and there's a shelf, and there's a, you know, the greens don't have a lot of depth. They have length there, but it's anyways. But you have to be accurate, so I wasn't. So, you sick of hearing me talk about my, that stuff? Okay, let's go. Get ready here. Let's prepare ourselves to hear the word of God. And uh, so, with, uh, with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day, another gift from you, another day to study your almighty word, to fellowship in your word with other like-minded believers. We thank you, Father, for this day that you've given us, this beautiful day and the, uh, the warm weather. And uh, Lord, I thank you so much for bringing me to Alabama so I don't have to shovel snow anymore. I just thank you so much for that. <laughs> Father, I thank you for the, this, this group that you uh, provided me to, uh, to minister to. As pastor, I thank you for the positive volition in this ministry. I just thank you, Father, for our leadership in our, in our, in our church here. And I just thank you for uh, bringing me here and this, this great gift of, uh, that you've provided for me. And I just uh, thank you for uh, this study and the doctrine of sanctification. I just pray that this study would be a blessing to your people uh, tonight with regards to Colossians 3. And also in the future, for those who listen to the recordings, and uh, I just pray that it would be a blessing to them, this very important subject, this very important doctrine. And so, Father, I just uh, pray tonight <clears throat> that you'd help your people in the audience to, to learn, to concentrate, uh, to carefully consider by the power of the Spirit, help them to do this, carefully consider the passages and principles we're noting tonight in order to make personal application. I, know that I pray also, Father, that uh, not only each individual be spoken to and their, with regards to their individual walk with you, but also all of us as a corporate unit. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would enable me tonight to bring forth your full counsel tonight with regards to this passage in Colossians 3, and to do so with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power, so that your people can receive the necessary spiritual nourishment because your word teaches us that man does not live in bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of your mouth. And so, Father, I pray the Spirit would do a mighty work through both myself as the communicator, and those who are your children in the audience. And we pray for this in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. You should be at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. We'll get there momentarily. And <clears throat> We've talked uh, about this subject of the doctrine of sanctification. This is our eighth hour, a nine-hour study. And the doctrine of sanctification, remember, it, uh, it uh, contends that at the moment of justification... At the moment of justification, when we exercise faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, the Holy Spirit, uh, through uh, his omnipotence, he placed this in union with his son, uh, the Father's Son, Jesus Christ, placed this in union with him, and also simultaneously identified us with Jesus Christ in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. What's the purpose for this identification? It's because we're under the headship of Christ now, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, and also uh, those events in Jesus' life provided us our so great salvation and sanctification. In other words, they provided us the basis for our eternal relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and our fellowship with them. And so the spiritual life is, uh, so we, so is, is related to this subject of sanctification. So it comes in three stages. Unlike justification, which is a sh one-shot decision that gets you into the family of God, all right. Sanctification is in three stages, and so is salvation, by the way, which we'll be teaching in the future. So sanctification is the positional aspect of sanctification. We went through each one of these individually. Positional means this is how God views you. This is what he did for you at your conversion, your justification. And it sets up the guarantee of being perfected, our sanctification being perfected in a resurrection body at the rapture, the resurrection of the church, which is imminent. And then it also sets up the potential to experience the sanctification in time. And uh, so that is, in other words, to, uh, to experience fellowship with God. And so it's only a potential because it's up to us to exercise uh, positive volition 
toward the, word, the, spirit, the teaching of the Spirit in Scripture, where he says to consider ourselves dead to the sin nature and alive to God, Romans 6.11. Why? Because we've died with Christ and we're raised with Christ. And Paul says something very similar to that in Colossians 3, 1-5, which we're going to teach tonight. So sanctification means simply that we're set apart to serve God exclusively. And so this tells us uh, to what the, the plan of God is for our lives. It's to do the Father's will. Uh, we're set apart to do His will exclusively, not to do our own thing. And so the, this is very important and uh, because sanctification is a wonderful metaphor that Paul uses. Uh, remember the articles in the temple, uh, they were considered holy. Why? Because they were set apart to the worship, exclusively for the worship of the Lord and the tabernacle. We are called saints, and a saints, the word for saints there, as we pointed, pointed out in our introduction to the subject, means is hagios. It talks about someone who is a holy one. And remember, sanctification is related to the holiness of God. So we, are, God wants us to experience uh, sanctification, in other words, to experience his holiness in our lives, okay? So, uh, so holiness, that's why you see in, in the NIV, they will use the word holiness in Romans 6, whereas other modern translations use the word sanctification, same thing. So, in other words, sanctification is another way of, of God saying that he's conforming us to the Holy One, Jesus Christ. And so we are, are holy as God because of our union identification with Christ, and God wants us to experience that, which is true of us already, okay? And what's going to be true of us when we're in a resurrection body at the rapture of the resurrection of the church? So this doctrine of sanctification also is extremely important in relation to the temptation to sin, now, all of us have a problem with sin. Myself, all of you. All of us in the, in the church have a problem with the sin nature because we still have a sin nature. It won't be totally eradicated from our lives until our death or the rapture, whichever comes first. And one of the reasons why we should eagerly anticipate the rapture or our death is because we will be minus the sin nature for the first time. And you and I have no idea how much it weighs our souls down. It wages war against the soul. Peter talks about this, and so does uh, Paul say, does this in Romans chapter 7. So this is a, so when we come to the subject of temptation of sin, this subject will help us. It should help us, and that's what my prayer is, is for this uh, series, is that it will help us when it comes to the temptation to sin. So when we come to the temptation of sin, we must stop and tell ourselves, wait a minute, I've died with Christ, I'm raised with Christ and seed with Christ. If I'm dead, how can I sin? If I've died with Christ and been raised to see with Christ to serve God and be his slave, why am I being a slave, going back to being a slave to the sin nature as well? I have a bottle of water here too, if you want. Uh, uh, Bert. It's the worst. I remember when I was in a, on a plane one time going out to Massachusetts from Iowa and I had this coughing fit. I couldn't stop it. And I was just, I, I learned from that day, when you go traveling, I don't care how much stuff you bring with you, make sure you have cough drops because... I tell you, that was so bad. And I was like, I was begging the, the stewardess, who was a guy, I was like, and he was like, can you give me a, a thing of water for crying out loud? Because I'm dying over here. It's like, so he finally got me the water like three days later. So anyways, that's my Massachusetts sarcasm going in. All right. So let's, uh, look, at, let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, 
appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Then it says, put to death, therefore. This word therefore is telling us that the first, this is what he's going to say here, is an inference from what he said in the first four verses. So he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then he says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived prior to your justification. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, ra rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, the new humanity, the new uh, 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 Jesus Christ is the new man, which is being renewed in, in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and, and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love. Basically, that sums up what he just said in the previous verses, in verse 12 and 13, which binds them, the practice of the command to love one another, which involves being uh, compassionate and humble and kind and gentle toward each other and patience with each other and forgiving each other. That is expression of, the, of obeying the command to love one another, John 13, 34, 15, 12. And that binds them all together in perfect unity. All right? So that is a tremendous passage in Colossians. And what's interesting about this, but you need to understand what Paul, to get an idea with Paul, why Paul's saying what he's saying in this letter in here. Uh, and also you need to know in Colossians, when he wrote this book, what he was dealing with, one of his purposes of writing this letter, what was it? Because it's tied, you need to know what the, the opponents that he was dealing with at that were infiltrating the Christian community in Colossae. Now remember, Colossians, like Philippians, like Ephesians, Philemon, was written in Paul's first Roman imprisonment, which ended in his release between 60 and 62 AD. This is why we call them the prison epistles. Colossians, Ephesians, and also Philemon actually was sent out with Tychicus. He probably went with all three of those letters. Ephesians actually is a circular letter uh, which is meant to all the Christian communities in the Roman province of Asia, which is now known as Turkey. So Colossae, and in fact Paul says in Colossians to take the letter, to exchange letters with the, the Laodiceans, and the Laodicean letter uh, in the ancient world was also, the contents of Ephesians was also known as addressed to Laodicea. And so this is quite interesting, because in the oldest and best manuscripts, Ephesians is, Ephesus is not found in Ephesians 1.1. But it's in the manuscript tradition. It, the reason why this is the case is because it was a circular letter. So Colossians, now Paul was dealing with a certain a particular issue here. Paul addresses, and this is from my article on the, uh, this is from my article, where, what is this here? Oh, I flipped it over here, sorry. So in the, this is from my article uh, that uh, I have on Colossians uh, and um, in the entire uh, uh, exegesis and exposition of it, and I think it's in my introduction here. But it, it's, he was dealing with what we call an Essene Judaism and, and, and also an incipient form of Gnosticism. So as it says here up on the board for you, Paul addresses the Colossian church with a particular concern for false teachers who had sprung up among them. And he, this teaching is described in Colossians 2, 8 through 23. 
And so uh, we see that the precise origin and philosophy of these false teachers is debated among scholars. Since Paul does not give a thorough description of the heretical teaching, it can only be guessed from relevant historical possibilities. Now, I believe strongly that the nature of the false teaching in Colossae was Jewish, because as we'll see tonight in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 23, he's dealing with some people who are Judaizers. Okay. In fact, it appears that Paul was dealing with an Essene branch of Judaism with a tinge of an incipient form of Gnosticism. I'll explain what that means. That was found in Essene Judaism. Now, Essene Judaism, Essenes, where were they? You might have heard of them. They lived in the shores of the Dead Sea and were very well known in the first century for their ascetic practices, one of which was abstaining from marriage. Asceticism is the idea that abstinence from physical things like food or sex is essential for spiritual purity. Now, this Essene Judaism, which had confronted the Colossian church in Paul's day, also had a Gnostic tendency. In fact, it appears that it contained an incipient form of Gnosticism. Incipient means uh, Gnosticism in its infancy. What was Gnosticism? Well, it didn't become a threat until the 2nd century A.D., and it's all over the early church fathers like Irenaeus. He talks about it. But they were an amalgamation of Greek philosophy and with, with Christian terminology. And they had their own terminology as well. So they deny, they, what they believed, their philosophy was that all matter was evil. In fact, that God was a human being and then he became, he became God. Okay, that's how whacked out they were. And so they thought all matter was evil and therefore that's why they couldn't accept the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was both God and man, because they believed God could never become a human being because all matter is evil. That's why that was called ascetic Gnosticism, which denied the human nature of Christ. So 1 John and 2 John, we study 2 John, but 1 John, what we'll study in the future, deals with that problem. That's why Paul, John says in the, in the prologue, the first four verses of chapter 1 of 1 John, that he, was, uh, he, he said, I, I was an eyewitness to the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. I touched him. I heard him. Okay? That's why he says what he says. And that's why he said what he says in, uh, in the, the prologue of the Gospel of John in the first 18 verses. The Word, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, he was dealing with an incipient form, of a docetic form of Gnosticism, which denied the human nature of Christ. But in Paul's case with Colossians, with the Colossians, he's actually the first evidence we've seen in the scriptures of the earliest form of Gnosticism causing a problem with the Christian community. So that's the background as to why Paul says what he says in chapter 2 and 3. So we see here, if you look at my, uh, in, in my translation on the board of Colossians 3.1, we say, and, and before I uh, read it for you, remember Colossians 3, 1 through 5 is what we're going to be studying tonight. And here we see that Paul in these verses teaches us that the Colossian Christian community, he's teaching them the doctrine of sanctification here. That's exactly what he's teaching them. And he's talking about the, uh, the positional and the perfective and the experiential aspect of sanctification. So it says in Colossians 3, 1, and this is my translation on the board, which brings out the, uh, the original language a little bit more explanatory than the modern translations can do. Case in point is the first class condition. Uh, if you look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, it says on the board in the NIV, it says, since then, okay, the, this word since, okay, and then is, is not the way you should treat a uh, change like this word, conditional particle A in the Greek. It's what we call a first-class condition, which indicates the assumption of truth for the sake of argument. So it's not just if 
or since. It's actually speaking of something that's an assumption of truth for the sake of argument. It was a tool of persuasion that Greek-speaking individuals who were debaters used to win a debate. So Paul, who is well-schooled and Greek rhetoric, okay, he was a Hebrew scholar, Aramaic, and he was a Greek scholar, okay, and probably knew Latin as well. He used this as a tool of persuasion when he was speaking to the various Christian communities under his auspices. So he would use this to persuade them to a certain, co a certain uh, 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 code of conduct. And that's what he does here tonight at Colossians chapter 3. So on my translation on the board, it goes as follows. Therefore, if, and let us assume it's true for the sake of argument, that each and every one of you have been raised up with Christ. This is called what we call a responsive first-class condition, which means the audience would agree with them. Because they've been taught this. We know this from the first chapter that they were taught by Tychicus. Epiphras, excuse me. They were taught the, the word of God by Epiphras. So he says, therefore, even let's assume it's true for the sake of argument, that each and every one of you has been raised up with Christ, and we agree that this is true, because that's the doctrine of the, of the, of the church. Then, here's the apodosis, we call it. The apodosis, the then clause, is the inference from the if clause, the apodosis. So then, he says... Here's what we can infer. If we've been raised with Christ, then we could, we're to make it our habit of diligently, he says, make it your habit of diligently seeking after the things above. What is that? Where Christ is, existing in the state of being seated at God's right hand. So in Colossians 3.1, we have, as I said before, the first class condition, which is designed, to, as I said also before, to persuade these faithful Christians in Colossae to appropriate by faith their identification with Jesus Christ and his resurrection in order to live the Christian way of life. Remember we studied Romans 6 last week. That's all about sanctification. And he says in Romans 6, 11, and 12, he says, consider yourselves dead to the sin nature, sin nature and alive to God. Why? Because he just said you died and you've been raised with Christ. What does he mean by consider? It's an act of faith to consider yourself to dead to the sin nature and alive to God. This is what God has done for you at the moment of justification. This is how he views you. And now we're to appropriate, means take possession of that which is true of us positionally. And you do that by faith. And when you do that by faith, you're appropriating the omnipotence of God that deals with the temptation to sin. Faith appropriates the omnipotence of God. God's word is power. Romans 6 is power, inspired by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit says this, you've died with Christ, raised with Christ. If you believe that, you'll consider yourself dead to the sin nature and alive to God when you're faced with the temptation of sin. It'll hinder you. It'll, this is how you live the spiritual life. So this is how, what Paul's teaching us. So this first class condition is tied to the one in Colossians 2.20. With the latter speaking of the Colossians' identification with Christ in his death and the former with his resurrection. And both identification with Christ in his death, as we pointed out in previous classes, and identification with Christ in his resurrection is the basis, the foundation for the Christian way of life. You are in a new position. God looks at you totally different than you were justification at, before justification. You're not in Adam, the first Adam. You're in Christ, a place of blessing. So now we're supposed to live in a life, our lives in corresponding to that position that we have as children of God in union with Christ and part of the new humanity that's going to reign over this earth for a thousand years and on into eternity, dispossessing Satan and the fallen angels. So if you look at Colossians 2.20 in your, in, your, in your Bibles, actually, pick it up. let's pick it up at verse 8. Look at Colossians 2.8. This is a really cool passage. And this is the passage that tells us that Paul was dealing with some Jewish opponents. 
because there's, and also a scene branch of Judaism. And uh, one of the things that they would do is they got involved in the worship of angels. You ever hear the book of Enoch? First Enoch? Okay. That's an intertestamental work. First Enoch, second Enoch, third Enoch. We, in fact, we saw in Jude, it was, a portion of it was quoted. You've ever read that book? Talk, they're talking a lot about angels, right? It's not inspired by God. Now, some of this stuff might be true, you know, and you know, like Jude quoted a portion of it, a little bit of it, and uh, that evidently was historically correct, but a lot of the stuff we can't confirm. So that book actually was probably something what the uh, scene branch of Judaism uh, in the Dead Sea area was involved in because Paul references in Colossians that these opponents that he's a, a dealing with were involved in the worship of angels, okay? So it says in, in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow, deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition. He's talking about legalism. What legalism is, is that it's adding to the scripture. It's, it's putting the scripture aside. For instance, um, you know, Jesus... You know, he, he, he dealt with this in Mark chapter 7. So they would put their own rabbinical traditions up on a par with the word of God or even above it. What the, Jew, the rabbis and the Pharisees did, the scribes, is that because the law was so difficult and people could not keep it, they put a hedge around it and basically give people an excuse not to obey it. And that's why Jesus went after them because you set aside the word of God for your own traditions. You say, the word of God says, honor your father and mother, and yet you say in your teaching that I don't have to honor my father and mother because what I'm giving, instead of giving it to them, I give, it to the, I give this as a gift to the temple. He says, you see, you're setting aside scripture for your own traditions. Roman Catholicism, where I came out of, is just like that. They put, they put Mary as a co-redeemer. That was just a, a new thing that they put out there. In the 1800s, it was never like that in the Roman Catholic Church for 1800 years and so, until recent times. So this legalism is putting putting the scripture, the uh, your man-made traditions, on a par with scripture or even above scripture, and that's and so that's why when people he's worried about the Colossians who are Gentile believers, and he was worried about that they would be taken captive by these false teachers that came from the Dead Sea area who were Judaizers and trying to put them under the law and to, to, do their, to obey their various man-made traditions. That's what's going on here. So he says in verse 8 again, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow, deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, the world system of Satan, rather than Christ. So this is what religion does. Religion and even, listen, even places that uh, churches that call themselves Christian, whether it's Roman Catholicism or Protestant, whatever, uh, um, Lutheranism or whatever it is, they have to be in agreement with the scripture. If they don't, if it's not in the scripture, you have no reason to, uh, to, to pay attention to it. I, perfect case example, when I first became a Christian, uh, there was this thing called Lent. You've probably heard of that. And you couldn't eat meat on Friday. Well, the places who sold fish made a killing during that time. All right. So I, when I first became a Christian, I said, "Oh, I don't have to. I don't have to obey that anymore." So I'm going to go. And I came home one day on a Friday, and in front of my family and everything, and I have a big steak and cheese, and I'm going, and everybody's looking at me like, "You can eat that?" He says, "I'm not a Roman Catholic. I'm a believer. I can eat all foods. Where does it say that I have to obey Lent? It's not in the Scripture. Show me. I'll do. I'll obey it if you want. Show me in your Bible." 
And I wasn't that flip. Maybe I was. I was probably 19, 20. It probably was flip. Didn't know what I was talking about. Taking my, uh, my, my knowledge and beating my parents up and everything. This is what you forced me to do. I hadn't eaten meat on Fridays forever. And now you're, t- I'm going to get you back. You know, no, I, I don't know if I was doing that. So I said, where's it in scripture? In the Ash Wednesday, I found out, boy, nobody in the church could tell me where we got these things. They were pagan. That's why. So that's what I'm talking about there. So then he says in verse 9, gives the reason for this. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you've been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. See this word fullness, pleroma? It was one of the words that these, these Gnostics, the Gnostics used. So he's using their own language to defeat them. It's pretty cool. And they, so he says in verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and you've been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. That's talking about Satan and his kingdom. In him you are also circumcised, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, your identification with Christ and his crucifixion, death, and burial. Then he says, Having buried with him, see, in baptism, this is what the circumcision done by Christ is, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave us all our sins. He says something familiar, similar in Ephesians 2.5. Then he says, having canceled the written code, and that's speaking of the law, with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away of nailing it to the cross. That's a reference to the law, okay? And it was a written code, and they couldn't keep it. Nobody could keep it. And so Christ had to come to keep it perfectly so that uh, he would be, take that out of the way as condemnation of us, okay? Then he says in verse 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, re- reference to Satan and his kingdom, he made a public spectacle of them, Triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. Defeated the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. Therefore, based upon these things he just said, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regards to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. I remember, uh, I remember when I first became a Christian, the guy who led me to the Lord, we started to listen to this guy named Henry... Henry Armstrong? Yeah, I think it was. Was that the boxer? Um, George, no, something W. Armstrong. Henry Armstrong was a great boxer one time. But it was a guy named Armstrong. And uh, he didn't believe in the Trinity. And he said you had to obey the Sabbath. And I don't know how he got into him. I got influenced by that. And I remember listening to J. Vernon McGee. And uh, we actually, we both heard J. Vernon McGee. He brought this passage up and said, goodbye, Sabbath day. Well, we, we were musicians, so Saturday was a bad day to have off, you know. Because we were partying and we were going to be playing that night. So, you know, so that, thank God we got that out of the way, right? So we can go probably sin and, and, and whatever. So Sabbath day, see, he's saying, these, this tells you this is a Jewish problem. Because the Jews observe the Sabbath and the new moon celebrations and the dietary regulations, okay? He, and then he says this, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. I mean, he's saying that those things in the law the substance and reality of these things is Jesus Christ. In other words, sanctification in the Old Testament was through the observance of these dietary regulations, okay, and these festivals and everything, whereas Christ is the fulfillment of all these things. Our sanctification is based upon an historical reality, the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of Christ the right hand, uh, right of the hand of the Father. Whereas in the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament Israel, 
Their sanctification was based upon shadow Christology, we call it. We have an historical Christology. Okay? Another, one, another thing you should thank God for that we came in this dispensation. Then he comes back and he says in verse 18, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility, humility and worship of angels, see, this, this is what the Essenes were involved in, disqualify, disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost con connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. The head speaking of Christ, and the ligaments and sinews, that's talking about the communicators of doctrine. Then he says in verse 20, since you have died with Christ, and I don't like the translation since. It means, if and let's assume it's true for the sake of argument, that you've died with Christ to the basic pr principles of this world. That's the cosmic system of Satan in the world. Why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You've died with Christ, haven't you? So why, he said, see how he's dealing with legalism? He's saying you've died to all these things. You've died to the law. The law can't, you no, have no jurisdiction over the law. And especially if you're a Gentile, you never were under this jurisdiction of the law. So these things condemned us, okay? But you died with Christ. So you don't have to obey these things. You died to the law. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And so then he says, these are all destined to perish with use because they're based on, such, on human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sexual, uh, sensual indulgence. So as I said before, the first class condition that we see in Colossians 3.1, where Paul says, therefore if and let us assume it's true for the sake of argument, that each and every one of you have been raised up with Christ and we agree that this is true, then continue to make it your habit of diligently seeking after the things above where Christ is existing in the state of being seated at God's right hand. So this first class condition is tied to the one in Colossians 2.20, which I just read to you. And here's my translation of Colossians 2.20. If and let us assume it's true, for the sake of argument, that each one of you have died with Christ, disassociated from the elementary teachings promoted by the cosmic system, of course we agree that this is true, then why, as though all of you are living according to the standards of the cosmic system, would any of you, at any time, allow yourselves to obey its prohibitions, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Okay? So this is talking about the spiritual life people. He's talking about how you confront legalism, Okay, you've died with Christ, you're raised with Christ. The law, you can't, all these, these regulations of man or the law itself, you're dead to. You died to, any of the philosophies of the world, you died with Christ at justification. And you're raised with him. And when you come to temptation to sin, well, you're going to have to appropriate by faith your union identification with Christ. You died with Christ. You're raised with Christ. So why sin when you died to the sin nature? Okay? And this takes faith, and when you have faith in what God's telling you, that you die with Christ and raise with Christ, live your life accordingly, uh, corresponding to that, that, un that appropriates the power of God. And that power is what you and I need to deal with temptation, to sin, and also to deal with the temptation of Satan's cosmic system with all its empty philosophies, vain, vain philosophies, and the legalism of the world. Okay? Which is religion permeates this world. It's Satan's ace trump. Right? So, we see that Christ died and was raised in order, that, in order for the Christian, you and I, to live a life of holiness, 
to grow to spiritual maturity and to produce good works which are pleasing to the Father. Thus, the process of a first-class condition in Colossians 3.1 is actually resuming Paul's thought from Colossians 2.20 where he uses a first-class conditional statement to persuade them to appropriate by faith their identification with Christ and his death. And again, this identification freed them from the power of the sin nature, Satan and his cosmic system, as well as the law. Now in Colossians 3.1, Paul's linking this identification with Christ in his death with the Colossians' identification with Christ in his resurrection. So therefore, we see here, Paul's persuading. Remember the first class condition is a tool of persuasion, which is reflected in my translation, okay? The persuasion, he wants to persuade them to, he takes doctrine and he persuades them to live according to it. Okay, so in the process of Colossians 3.1, he's saying, if and let us assume it's true for the sake of argument, okay, that you've been raised up with Christ, that's the doctrine, that's the teaching, here's the application, then what do we should do with that? We're to make it our habit of diligently seeking after the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So we see here on the board this next statement here that I have, Paul's persuading, therefore, the Colossians, that they must appropriate by faith their identification with Christ and his resurrection to live the Christian way of life, while simultaneously appropriating by faith their identification with Christ and his death to deal with the false teaching of the Judaizers. Okay, this is what's going on here. So the inference in Colossians 3.1 indicates that the Colossians have died with Christ, therefore... They've been raised with Christ, and he says this exact same thing in Romans 6, 5, and 8. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1, please. Turn there. Romans 6, 1. So in other words, when, 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 when you look at this identification with Christ, okay, we died with Christ, we crucified, died, buried, raised, and seen with Christ. In other words, he's looking at you as a new human being. You're a new creation, he says. Okay? The old creation is what we were prior to our justification, prior to our conversion. As I said before, Bill Winston died at 19. Bill Winston Jr. died at 19 when he, died, when he believed in Jesus Christ as Savior because little did he know until he was taught this that the Holy Spirit placed him in union with Christ and identified him with Christ in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session, the right hand of the Father. So this is the reason why we are identified with Christ is because we're, he's made us a new creation. So if we're a new creation, why live in the old creation, the old self? Did, did we ever enjoy, do we, any of us ever enjoy committing sin? As a believer, you can't. Eventually, you get, you'd be depressed as a son of a gun because and you're convicted all the time. The Holy Spirit's convicting you when you and I sin or think evil thoughts, sinful thoughts, or do anything or say anything that's contrary to, to, to sound teaching. Okay? So in, in, we, what we want to do is live at the, the place where a fellowship with God, and a, which is a place of peace, joy, the, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. That's the place to live. Especially, you know, when we deal with, we live in a devil's world. We live, people are sinners, we're sinners, and there's the cosmic system of Satan, and the, Satan is ruling, warring against the church. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 teaches us that. This is a pretty miserable place at times for us, especially for the Christian, okay? So we, so we, Okay, we need to, we need to if we're gonna we're gonna have that, it's better to live in fellowship with him and deal with this world 
and others than without not being in fellowship with him. I look back, how in the world I did, did dealt with this world? I couldn't deal with this world. No one could deal with this world and the sin and all the, 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 the miserable place that this is and, and how we're all a bunch of miserable human beings, the human race. None righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short of the, sin, fallen short of the glory of God, right? So, you know how we handled it? Everybody, you know, sex, drugs, sublimation, anything to take our minds off the reality. You know, it hit me one time, I have family members, and I wonder why they watch TV so much time, all the time, movies. It's because the fantasy takes away from the reality. It's too difficult. The death and the murder and the sin and, and, the sl- and all the garbage that's in the world. And, you know, uh, uh, politics, all that stuff, everything. Injustice. You can't handle reality. So what you do? You go to drinking, you do alcohol, sex, TV, Sports, oh, sports, you know, I say this, and I love, I come from New England. New Englanders, and I say New Englanders, I'm talking about Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine. Okay, they're New Englanders, okay? We don't count Connecticut. We give them to New York. They're the most miserable people. I mean, you know why? Because they're such idolaters now. I'm saying the majority. They're, 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 you listen to their sports talk shows. Oh my gosh, poor Bill Belichick. You should hear what's going on. The guy just made that, put that place on the block, on, on the map, and they're ready to run him out of town. I think he gets a pass. You should stay here for a lifetime. You leave when you want to, Bill. Because Kraft's not going to do that if he has an empty stadium, you know, because we expect perfection. You know, people are just miserable. You know, they just, they just they, they, you know if the Red Sox or the Bruins or, Lu- or the sports teams are not winning, it's depression in the whole place. And you know, I pray for their win. They're winning, so they, you know they. Oh gosh, thank God! But there's negativity and everything, and there's skepticism, and you know it's all that stuff. Where's the skepticism? Uh, you know, this bad attitude about everything. And I, I know because Massachusetts is like that. Because I come from Massachusetts, I'm a New Englander, and I was like that, and I can fall into that, you know. So what they, they need Jesus, but again. They live in a part of the country where they think they're smarter than everybody else. They have the colleges, we do. We think we're smarter than everybody else. We've got these colleges, we got Harvard, we got, we got all these big schools, BU and everything. And we, they, they did a study. New England is the most arrogant people in the country, the rest of the people think, in the country. And you know what? They're right. Because we, when the Patriots win, we think it's us that won, okay? So you, you're, you hate us because you ain't us, is what we used to say. It's like, that's the way they are. And... I've never, you know, so I've never seen like that in any other part of the country. Maybe, maybe it is, and I don't, you know, maybe Alabama's like that with Alabama football. I don't know. I don't, t- I don't know. But it, it's so weird, you know, because New England is, they need Jesus, and they're so miserable, and they can't deal with this world the way it is. That's why they have to go to an alternative reality, <laughs> okay? That's why they do that. That's why sports is an outlet is what I, my point is. It's a sport, it's, it's so I don't have to deal with what's reality. So you and I, we can deal with reality, okay? We can deal with reality. We know truth is reality. The non-believer doesn't know what truth is. If he does, you know, okay, he do, if he does live it to, according to its establishment principles, okay, well, I'm talking about in general, they don't, know tr- they don't know reality. The reality is, is that this is a fallen world, and when you die, you're going to go to a lake of fire if you don't believe in Jesus, because you're not measuring up to God's perfection, God's holy, that's reality, world can't deal with the people of the world can't deal with that so thank god that you and i can deal with it so we see here that just as jesus christ just as jesus christ death is meaningless 
without his resurrection. So the Christian's identification with Christ in his death is meaningless without their being identified with him in his resurrection. Now the reason for this, people, is that his resurrection vindicated him in the sense that it demonstrated the Father had accepted his work on the cross to deal with the problem of personal sins, the sin nature, spiritual and physical death, enslavement to Satan and his kingdom, and condemnation from the law. So these faithful Christians in Colossae that Paul's writing to is, uh, are already obeying this command in Colossians 3.1. And this is indicated that they're seeking the things above. They're already doing this. They're appropriating by faith the union identification with Christ and his death and resurrection. How do we know this? There's two factors. In the letter itself tells this, the context of the letter. First in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3-5. Paul informed these faithful Christians in Colossae that he gave thanks to the Father in prayer for them after hearing about their faith in Jesus Christ, their justification, and that they were practicing the command to love one another. Second of all, we see that in Colossians 2.5, Paul asserts that he was rejoicing over the fact that these Colossian believers that were faithful were disciplined and specifically, they were dedicated. He specifically, he rejoiced over their dedication, which was produced by their faith with regards to their union and identification with Christ. So when he says, keep seeking the things above, or make it your habit of seeking the things above, what is this things above about? Things above is a reference to a couple of things. First of all, the spiritual values and holy standards which characterize God and his people. And which standards are met by the believer when they appropriate by faith their identification with Christ. It's also related to the spiritual blessings. The things above are also related to the spiritual blessings with, uh, associated with our union identification with Christ. Hold your place. Look at Colossians, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Ephesians 1, 3. Again, this book, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians are probably all written around the same time and sent out through the same guy. Tychicus. Imagine being Tychicus with these letters. You, think, you didn't think there was a lot of prayer for him to get safely to where he was going? I'd be scared. You want me to take Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon? Are you kidding me? That's too much pressure. Bring, let Rex go with me. <laughs> Rex, you want to go? He'd be going, yeah, let's go. I'm ready. Me, I'd be like, oh, man, we're going to get attacked. You know, I'm sure they had, you know, thieves and all kinds of stuff. No, who I would take? I would take my buddy. I'd, pay, I'd take Scott, because he's a police officer. That's why I would take Scott. I would take Scott, and I would be no problem at all. Praise be to God, Ephesians 1, 3. Praise be to the God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms, in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Where is Jesus? Seated at the right hand of the Father. You're in union with him, right? So when I say the things above... It's referring to, in Colossians 3, 1, 3, 1 and 2, he says, it's actually speaking of spiritual values and holy standards which characterize God and his people and which standards are met by the believer's identification with Christ when we appropriate that. But also, it's related to the spiritual blessings that are ours because we're in union with Christ. Is Christ the Father's Son, one and only Son? Yes, Okay. Does he, is all the creation his? He created it. Everything in it is his. The earth, the universe, still universe, the throne, everything is his. Okay? The Father gave it to him. And are we in union with Christ? Are we married to Christ? We're the bride of Christ, yes. 
Think about that. You could be one of these people out in the street and union with Christ, and you are wealthy, filthy, wealthy, rich, and, you know, you could still be, you could be anybody. You could be poor. You could be in Africa. This way the gospel just went, exploded throughout the Roman Empire because most of the people were not high society people. They didn't even have a middle class, okay? You were up here or you're down here. You were a slave or something, okay? And so this was great news. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I'm nothing in this world, but I'm going to be something in the next world because all the wealth of the world belongs to Jesus and we're in union with him. Now, what do you think Jesus, a, 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 good, a good husband would do for his wife? Whatever she wants, right, pretty much. Whether he needs honey, don't go over the budget. <laughs> but, but Jesus, there's no budget. Think about that, okay? So, that is an interesting passage that tells us about the blessings that we have. So go back now to Colossians 3.1. So thus Paul, in Colossians 3.1, he's exhorting the Colossians to make every effort to experience their sanctification, which would be the result of appropriating by faith their identification with Christ in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. Now listen to me. I was talking to Mrs. Peake about this, though. We're talking about faith and uh, in, in, in entering into his rest. You must work at it. Look, it. it's true. The walk of faith, to appropriate by faith your unite identification with Christ or have faith in God's word, it's going to be a battle at times, okay? We have a, our flesh is opposing us. The devil and his cosmic system are throwing thought projecting at us through the various medias we have and the ungodly people in our lives and trying to get us to go away from God. Okay, it's a battle have f- to have faith in God's word. Didn't Paul say at the end of his life in Second Timothy, "I fought the good fight of faith"? To walk by faith in this world is a war. You're at war with the flesh that's in your enemy within. Paul talks about this enemy within in Romans six and in Ephesians two one two three. The enemy without Satan's cosmic system that's trying to seduce us away from worshiping and obeying God and worshiping Jesus, okay? It's a fight. So what I say, you might, you're going to fall down and you're not going to win the fight all the time. Remember this. Uh, remember the Red Badger coverage, okay? Great book. It's been a long time since I read it. Guy goes off to war, okay, young guy, and he, he chickens out. He runs from the battlefield. Well, he gets a second chance, Okay? So you might fall in the battlefield run, or run away from the fight and sin, okay? Confess the sin and get back in the ball game. Okay? It ain't over until the Lord takes you home. Okay? Don't get discouraged. We all fail. It's going to be all right. He knows that. He knew you were going to do this, that sin, whatever you're sending him, the area of sin, or that you might have a certain area that you always seem to be falling in. Don't worry, you're going to have the victory over it. Paul understood Romans 7 autobiographical oh wretched man that I am who's going to save me from this body of sin thanks be to God through Christ Jesus my union identification with Christ Jesus I'm delivered so we're going to get the victory in a perfected sense at the rapture resurrection of the church or our death whichever comes first right so keep persevering these things take practice to do to be a good Christian and to be an excellent Christian to be a faithful Christian it takes practice just like you to be a good golfer, you've got to practice. If you want to be a good anything in it, you have to have practice. You've got to be trained and practice. It's one thing to have talent. 
You know, a lot of guys have talent. A lot of gals have talent. You know, you say this in sport. The worst thing I might, that you ever heard, that guy had a lot of potential, but he never lived up to it. All of us in this room has enormous potential because we're in union with Christ. We're, we have a new nature, okay? So we have enormous potential, and the, most, and the saddest thing in the world to me is when a Christian dies the sinner to death. I'll tell you right now, I know of several Christians in the last, in my life personally, that died that sinner to death. Died young, too. And now I'm telling you that that's the saddest thing because they had enormous potential. Yeah, they're going to be with Christ, but they could have had so much more. They could have had such a great life, and what a sad thing. And that's the greatest thing that scares the heck out of me. I don't want to end up like that. I don't. And if I, you see me going that way, punch me in the face. Do whatever it takes. Kurt, you got your, you got your, I'll, I'll give that to Kurt for that assignment, you know, okay? And, uh, so, but you need that. You need something. That's why we need to hold each other accountable, you know? And I can't stand to see that, but it happens. People have volition. I can't, I can't stop somebody from living a certain way. They got their, they got their mind, they have their own mind. I can't jump in the head and go, oh, believe. You know, just do what it says. It's easy. No, they have different battles that you don't know about. Everybody's different. Some of us, you know, every, there's some people who start the race really quick and then they fail. They fall off. There's some people who are slow and then they, they finish quickly. They finish good. Okay? We're all at different stages of spiritual growth. Don't compare yourself to anybody else. Okay? Don't compare yourself because we're all individuals. You, you, you have circumstances and things and background and baggage that I don't have and vice versa. We're individuals. So don't, the worst, the worst thing you could do is let the devil get you, and he's doing that with his enemy, to get you down about yourself. And I'm a failure. Hey, you're in union with Christ. Confess the sin. The devil wants you to, I died with Christ. Those sins that you committed were nailed to the cross. Don't let the devil feel guilty. Yeah, you confess, that's what you need to do. That's all you need to do. And move on. Rebound, move on. Pick up the sword of the, sword of the spirit, okay, the word of God, and get back in the fight, okay? Don't let, the, don't let your past destroy you. I've seen that too much with Christians. So again, Paul, he's exhorting the Colossians to make every effort to experience their sanctification, which would be the result of appropriating by faith their identification with Christ and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. And this would fulfill, this would fulfill the twofold purpose. One, to experience the spiritual blessings associated with your union identification with Christ resulting in the glorification of the Father and spiritual growth. Two, to experience and manifest God's holy standards and values in the Christian way of life. Repeat, the twofold purpose here, one, to experience the spiritual blessings associated with our union identification with Christ, and that will result in the glorification of God, meaning we're manifesting his power, his wisdom, all that. And this results also in spiritual growth. That's what we're supposed to do, grow up to spiritual maturity, become like Christ. Number two, to experience and manifest God's holy standards and values in the Christian life. Those two, that twofold purpose is related to the things above that we just talked about. Now, it says in Colossians 3, 2, uh, my translation on the board, it says, each and every one of you, continue making it your habit of concentrating on the things above not on the things on earth. Here in verse 2, Paul's exhorting the Colossians to focus their thinking, 
upon their holy or godly standards and values and spiritual blessings related to their union identification with Christ. Thus, Paul's exhorting the Colossians in verse 2 to focus their thinking, thinking on sanctification. Thinking is enormous. One of the big things that's happened in this country since the advent of television in America, I think it started there. Definitely a big meeting. The dumbing down of America and the dumbing down of Christian, Christianity in America. That's why Christians go for the dog and pony show, the entertainment, the social activities. Hey, nothing wrong with social activity, but you don't determine where you're going to go to church by the social activities. Oh, I want to get a girlfriend. I want to get a boyfriend. I want to get a husband. I want to get a wife. You know, and they make decisions based upon that. I had a woman message me on Facebook, and she goes, are you a dispensationalist? And I go, yeah, we're dispensationalists. And this is one of your Bible ministries. And she goes, uh, you know, do, you, do you believe that all, you know, people go to hell forever, lake of fire? I go, yep. And she goes, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't believe with that. I, I'm trying to find a church that do that. <laughs> and she goes, plus I want to find a husband. I was like, oh, maybe that's why she, that's why she friended me on Facebook. You know, I, gotta, I have to watch out for that because all these crazy single women, you know, you, I don't know if you have, they'll do that. Oh, you know, the message and they'll, you know, like, uh, get out of here. I know who you are. <laughs> Delete that one. But this is what they do. They're looking for a, a mate. You don't choose a church on that. That's like the stupidest thing of all time. I know because when I was younger, I, I mean, when I went to Bob's church, I said to myself, I was looking for, I wanted, a, I wanted to get married. I wanted a right, right woman, man, right woman, right? Well, you know, I was like, you know, God said, no, you're here for, he taught, he taught me, you're here to, to learn Bible doctrine and go to spiritual ter- maturity and serve me. Maybe I'll give you a wife, maybe I won't. I don't owe you anything, Bill. There's the people you got to realize. We're here to serve him. Sanctification, that might not include a wife or a husband. Then what are you going to do? Well, then I'm not going to follow you, God. See, I was confronted with that too. You know what I said? You know what? I'm going, to, I, I, I'm going to follow him. And man, it was battles. But you know what? The best thing I ever did. I didn't choose the church based upon, or ministry, or what I was going to do based upon how I felt or my, you know. Is it, is, is it, is it, it's nothing wrong with being married and kids. I'd, who would lo- I'd love it. But you know what? If that's not God's plan for your life, that's not God's plan. And not everybody can accept that. Okay, I ended, and, I, and I'm, I'm one of the few that can do that. I mean, God gave me, I don't know. I, 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 because I look around, there's no pastors I know that are single. I, I'm sure there's someone single out here, but I, don't, I haven't met them, okay? But if you get, if you, so if you're single, you got to put things in perspective. You don't choose a church based upon, you charge your church about one thing, do, am I getting fed? And I had, a, I, had a, I had a Christian, he was a Christian man, and you know, he, he was saying, you know, uh, you, you, um, basically there's more to it than uh, feeding, you, than what you're saying is feeding me. What it really was was the social life. And I spent a lot of time with this person more than anybody else in our church back then. So, and so the person was making a decision based upon I want, uh, the social life. I want to get, a, I want to get married. I want, to have a kid, I want to have a wife. I want to have kids. Okay? Legitimate thing, but you're going out of the will of God. You know, the geographical will of God. So, Colossians 3, 2, you got to concentrate, think. Dumbing down of America, people don't want to think. They want the dog and pony show. They want the entertainment. They want the social life. Think the word of God. This is, you know, this ministry, you, have, you will sink or swim on whether you would think. God says you're supposed to love, your, love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It, heart, soul, mind is up here in the head, cabeza. 
I don't mind. I understand when people say, oh, you know, you, 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 when they point to your cardiovascular system. But when the Bible talks about that, heart, soul, mind, it's up here. So you concentrate, thinking, thinking, very important. So Colossians 3.3, 3, Paul says, because why should we do this? Because each and every one of you have died with Christ. Consequently, the life of each and every one of you is concealed with Christ by means of the power of God the Father. So here in verse 3, Paul presents the reason for the command and the prohibition in verse 2 by asserting that the Colossians have died with Christ, which again speaks of their identification with him in his death through the baptism of the Spirit. And then he presents the logical result, marked by the word consequently here in my translation, the logical result of this identification with Christ and his death by asserting that the eternal life of the Colossians is concealed with Christ by means of the omnipotence of the Father. There, thus we see that they're to continue to make it their habit, this is a lifestyle, okay, of concentrating on the things above and not on the things on earth. Why? Because you've died with Christ and consequently their eternal life is concealed with Christ as well by means of the omnipotence of the Father. Another thing about that marriage thing, I'll tell you, listen to me, 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says to them, you should, if you're married, you should live as if you're not married. What he means is, the he's not saying get rid of your responsibilities. He's saying your attitude as a married person should be like the single person. That what am I here on earth for? Sanctification. I'm set apart to serve God exclusively. Whatever he has me do, he might have you go off to, as a missionary to our deepest, darkest Africa. He might send you to Iowa. He might send you to Alabama. He might send you to Alaska. Well, thank God you didn't take me send me to Alaska. And because I, I don't like snow, as you know. And, well, you, these things, it's about, uh, oh, you, you, this is one thing. Forget about the marriage. Forget about the kids. If God wants you to have it, you'll have it. But the big thing is, are you doing his will? That's the most important thing. Because when you die, and you, it won't be, the marriage thing is, is going to be irrelevant one day. Right? So, the command. Now we have, we see here that the reference to eternal life of the Colossians being hidden with Christ is a reference to their identification with Christ and his resurrection. And this interpretation is supported by Paul's teaching in Romans 6, 4, in which he asserts that the Christian has been buried with Christ through the baptism in his death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so the Christian might walk in newness of life. I had you at Romans and I got you out of there. I told you to turn there. Sorry, go back to Romans 6, 1. <laughs> we'll close. We're going to get out of here. Now, see, I'm running late again. It's Kirk's fault. He distracted me. Romans 6 1. Also, another, another reason why this, support, uh, this uh, interpretation is supported by Paul's teaching, also it's supported by his teaching in Romans 6 8, which we'll read in a sec. He asserts that if the Christians die with Christ, they also live with him. So the, the, possession of the, the Christian's possession of eternal life is directly related or is the result of their being identified with Christ in his resurrection. In fact, that's what Paul says in Romans 2, 5, and, uh, Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. He says, I, when you were dead in your sins and transgressions, Romans 2, 5, and 6, he made you alive with Christ. Then he says, explains it in verse 6. He raised you up with Christ and he seated you with Christ, the right hand of the Father. Okay? So Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live it any longer? Well, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will also certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, first class condition we have, we believe that we will also live with him. So you can go back to Colossians chapter 3. So the Christian is identified with Christ in his death and resurrection so that they might possess and experience eternal life. Colossians 3, 4 on the board, my translation, when Christ, the life of each and every one of you, enters into the state of being revealed at the rapture, then at that time, each and every one of you will as a certainty be revealed with him in a state of glory. Notice each and every one of you that means there's no exceptions. That blows away the partial rapture teaching. The partial rapture view, uh, the rapture, the partial view says only the faithful believers will go up in the rapture. Okay, when we do the rapture, we'll talk about that. But that's the false because Paul says everybody in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58, and here he says in other places, he says everybody goes up, whether you're faithful in this life or not. Okay, so Colossians 3, 4, as you can see by the word when, at the beginning of the verse, is a temporal clause, which teaches that the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Colossians will take place simultaneously with the Colossians being revealed with Christ in a state of glory. The emphasis, actually, with this temporal clause is to encourage the Colossians that they will be revealed in glory with Christ when he does appear to them at the rapture. Again, the emphasis is not if Christ will appear to them, but that he will appear to them. It's a certainty. And this will result in their being glorified with him in a resurrection body. So here in verse 4 of Colossians chapter 3, Paul's asserting that when Christ is revealed, then the Colossians will also be revealed with him in a state of glory. Now, if the church, age believer, is guaranteed a resurrection body, the rapture, resurrection of the church, when Christ appears to the church, then they must continue to live their lives in the meantime in a manner which is consistent with this future event, which will take, uh, which will, uh, uh, take place in all of their lives. So in Colossians 3, 4... Paul speaking of the Colossians' sanctification in a perfective sense, in a resurrection body. Colossians 3.5 says, Therefore, I solemnly charge each and every one of you to put to death the members of that which belongs to your earthly nature with regards to the practice of sexual immorality, sexual impurity, sexual lust, evil desire, as well as that which is greed, which is, as an eternal spiritual truth, gnomic present, characterized as idolatry. Now, we'll close with this. The command here in verse 5 is actually an inference from his previous statements in verses 1 through 4. That's what the therefore in your passage, in your translations is speaking of in Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, in Colossians 3, 5, saying what's said in verse 5 is an inference from those first four verses. What do we talk about in those first four verses? You've died with Christ, you're raised with Christ. In verse 5, Paul is solemnly issuing another command which requires that the Colossians put to death the members of that which belongs to their earthly nature with regards to the practice of immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. The Colossians must put to death the members of their bodies with regards to the practice of immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed based upon the fact that they have died with Christ and have been raised with Christ. In other words, the command here in verse 5 is issued based upon the fact that the Colossians and all Christians are identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. And when Paul issues this command, he's doing so with a sense of urgency. 
Every church, every believer should have a sense of urgency. From the pastor on down, it's like a good football team. They have a sense of urgency. They're not lazy. They're, they're ready to play every game, every minute. Okay, till the clock runs out. We should have a sense of urgency as Christians. It should be, we should be uh, totally distinguished from the, the, the culture around us. So as we close, Paul's statements in Colossians 1, 3, 2, 5, and 2, 5 make clear that the Colossians were already obeying this command in verse 5 of Colossians 3, along with the others in this epistle, since they affirmed that the Colossians were obedient to the gospel. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson be a blessing to your people, bringing glory to you in your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray for this in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to sing us a song and get us out of here. It's related to our verse here tonight, our passage. I wrote this song when Bob was teaching in Colossians, my pastor. And it's probably like, oh man, it's over 25 years old, I think, now. It's pretty crazy. My kids, I call my songs, my songs kids. So what, some of my kids are getting really old.
love 